0: better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times to get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 20th, 2017, and this episode, 2027 of the Survival Podcast. This is a special episode. It's, I mean, the subject is going to be a subject type that we've done plenty of times. I don't know this will be one of those episodes you listen to over and over and over again, but it's a symbolically special episode. Because nine years ago today, I got into that little Jetta TDI and uh, hit record for the first time in 2008 and did episode one of the Survival Podcast. The Survival Podcast has its official birthday and turns nine years old today. We are one year off a decade of the Survival Podcast. And I just wanted to take a minute here at the beginning of this episode to say thank you to all of you who have supported me over the years, who have shared my show with others, who have come to my workshops, that's come to public appearances to see me, who have supported myself and my wife and our efforts and our work, and uh, because otherwise, it's just some guy talking into a microphone. Without the communities that have been built, and I use the word community, it's in plural, that have been built around the survival podcast uh, main community, uh, we wouldn't be a third, a tenth, a quarter. You know, we wouldn't be anything of what we are today. Really, um, the forum, the Zello communities, the Facebook communities, and on and on it goes. I mean, you guys are. The reason I do this show, and I just wanted to put out a full, heartfelt thank you today on the ninth year anniversary of the Survival Podcast. So on this ninth anniversary, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about gardening. And I thought that would be a fitting subject for today, because we've talked about a lot of really deep, heavy things lately, and there's some deep stuff going on right now in the world. But uh, I think that one of the things we've always built this show on is, this is what you can do. In your own life, that'll actually matter to you today, and actually do something for you tomorrow. And learning to grow your own food is a big one of those. But what I decided to do today was go through twelve overlooked uh, plants for the garden. And the reason I did this is, you know, I was just thinking when you when you go to you know a garden center, a box store, or whatever, in late spring, early summer, you know, you see cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers and Cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers, and I mean, there's some other stuff, but I mean, that's you know, a big time of what it is. And then people tend to grow things like beans from seed, and but there's a lot of stuff out there beyond cucumbers, tomatoes, and peppers, and cucumbers, tomatoes, and peppers that we can grow in our gardens. Some of them are much more valuable to us. Um, I grow cucumbers because they're easy, but they're not really that profitable because cucumbers are cheap in the summer. I mean, go look at even organic ones. Um, But, you know, tomatoes and peppers, again, you're looking at something that's that's widely available when you can grow them. But there's other stuff out there that that really can do a lot for us, and it may provide us better nutrition, or it may provide us something that's disease and uh, pest-free as an analog. For instance, one of the things today we're going to talk about are tomatillos, Uh, and a lot of people have problems growing tomatoes. I know I do. I'm, I'm harvesting bunches of tomatoes right now, but I'm also watching my plants just be tore up by blight. And as I'm making clones, trying to get ahead of the blight, the clones are getting a little bit of blight on them before they even, you know, are heavily rooted. So I was thinking, you know, why, why didn't you grow tomatillos this year, Jack? So I actually found a source to get some plants on jet.com for some purple tomatillos, and I'll talk about those and other cool things that you can grow in your garden that we tend not to think about. Again, many of these things are really easy to grow and very prolific and uh, provide a lot of variety to that stuff coming out of the backyard because how many cucumbers can a man eat? I don't know. By the end of next week, maybe I'll be able to tell you as I deal with my current cucumber apocalypse out of the aquaponic system. Um, Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Com. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. So before we get into uh, our main topic of today's show, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have uh, two segments here today from uh, Southpaw Ben and David Verne on the year that was, and we are up to the year 10 in our journey through history now, and um, here's what I have from Southpaw Ben, more economic muckery contributed by Southpaw Ben. This year, Wang Meng decides to stop price fluctuations by creating a government agency that would buy surplus foods and textiles and keep prices up during times of abundance and sell them during times of scarcity. He also introduced the first income tax in China, which changed, charged professionals and skilled laborers 10% of their profit. Finally, he introduced a sloth tax this year, which applied to farmers that left land uncultivated, silly dwellers who didn't have trees, For any citizen that refused to work. Uh, My take by Southpaw Ben, apparently bringing back the Chinese golden age ain't cheap, while the price stabilizing agency seems to mostly have been made with only the intention of helping people when coming from such an ideological emperor, the other laws' motives weren't so pure. Prior to Wang Meng, there had only been property or head taxes placed on the Chinese people's and while many of us would love to see more city trees, especially productive ones, most don't want people fined for not choosing to have them. And and said people usually advocate uh, for allowing some fields to be fallow to help with soil health. So even that law is definitely more negative than positive. On the fallow fields, I don't think they understood that yet. They just didn't know. Um, but definitely, actually I don't think fields actually should ever be left fallow uh, on that one. Uh, though I don't want the government to enforce this, but... The proper field management is changing what's growing there, and sometimes you grow something that you don't harvest, you simply till it in. I guess some would call that fallow, but I look at fallow as like, you just don't do anything. And I think that's a terrible thing to do for land management. Absolutely awful. Um, Especially when a field has already been harvested uh, of something that was an annual, because you have a big giant patch of dirt, and you have big giant erosion problems. But I don't think that's really what Ben meant by that. He just was pointing out the stupidity here of the government. I would like to point out how stupid this is. But I also want to point out this would be a free market nirvana compared to what we have in the United States today. Can you imagine like, if you were considered skilled, you paid a 10% income tax? I guess I would be skilled. I would love to pay a 10% income tax compared to what I actually pay right now, especially if that was my only tax. And then this taxing people that refuse to work... Um, I don't want the government really taxing anybody, but that's the best idea I've ever heard of. If you're going to tax somebody, could you imagine instead of a welfare state, if like if you can work and you don't, you have to. If you have no income, you have to find income to pay a tax for being useless. Um, not a fan of the state, but if there's going to be a tax, I, I can see some value to that. Um, I don't know where they get money to pay their tax. I guess you have to beg somebody to give you money to pay the tax so that you have to find someone that believes that you are uh, actually fundamentally useless. And what do you do with them if they don't pay the tax? I guess you force them to work, see the state always... Even when it sounds like a good idea, always comes back to evil. All right, from David Vern, I have the last remnants of an empire. When Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C., his empire was split among his generals. This year, the last of those kingdoms ends... Bractia, located in modern-day Iran and Pakistan, was made up of the lands of the furthest reaches of Alexander's empire. It is a mixture of Greek, Hindu, and Buddhist cultures, but was never a powerful kingdom. It will fall this year to the Scythians, although it is believed that Greek settlements survived for longer. My take by David Verne. Alexander was a brilliant commander and created a massive empire, but he didn't do much to make an easy transition of power. His empire was divided up into several kingdoms, each ruled by one of his generals. His empire didn't last long, but his legacy has lasted throughout the ages. No small part due to a team of historians he took with him on campaign. He did have some good insights on life. One of my favorite quotes from him is, quote, I am not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I am afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion, end quote. This is startlingly true startlingly true in this day and age where sheep are led about by lions. Um, well, actually, kind of the way I take that and the way I think it was meant is that the, the brave leader can make the difference for the entire team, no matter where it is. And you see this, the true commanding general. And it doesn't always have to be military and fighting for you to see it. I've seen, for instance, football games where, like, the starting quarterback, you know, like a Joe Namath or a Johnny Unitas or somebody like way back in the day, right? Or a Joe Montana in my day. or I don't know who now. Um, whoever. Um, but, you know, the guy goes down injured, but they're not really sh- He's iffy on playing. And they don't want to get him hurt more, but this is an important game. And they're trying to make a decision. And what they, they decide is, well, you know what? At the level he's able to play at right now, our backup is technically better than him. And they bring him in, and they maybe are even in the lead when this happens, and it starts to fall apart. And toward the end of the game, they put the injured guy back in, and the whole team turns around and plays at at the level that they're actually capable of. Because they believe in themselves. There's a huge lesson there. Leadership requires that one lead from the front, not drive from behind. Reminds me of an old story I t- I've heard told before that I'll, I'll tell here today. I think I've told it on the show before, but in, in the story, there is a a young man and his father, and they have they live in this 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 country that borders another country, and you can see right off the top of their mountain down into the the neighboring country and, and off into the lands that are theirs. And his country is known for having the best sheep they have the best wool sweetest meat everything about them is better and the other country that's right just on the other side of the mountain is known for having lackluster sheep and it doesn't make sense because they have the same climates they have the same opportunities, the same grass and the young man asked his father why are our sheep so much better and he said because our shepherds lead our sheep from in front their shepherds drive them from behind now whether that's true or not I don't know how that affects sheep but I know how it affects people. Because even when we call the, 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 some of the, you know, the mainstream people in this country sheeple, it's not their fault. They've been lulled into this by a system that's programmed them since birth. In the end, people are not sheep. They are not. And what it takes is solid leadership. The problem with that is they can be misled to believe somebody is a leader who is not worthy and that plays right into the dichotomy of politics. Both sides select their leader, and then the other guy must be evil, and they're following a false leader rather than being a leader in their own life. When you're a leader in your own life, but you need leadership beyond that, then you identify true leaders. My thoughts by Jack Spirico. Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the SurvivalPodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about $0.18.3 an episode. All right, guys. So let's let's get into this uh, this topic on twelve underrated plants for your garden. Um, this is a time of year where people generally are kind of like, if you're in the northern regions, you're really happy about your gardening. I mean, you're coming into the the best part of it. You know, as long as you get rain, you're good. Or if you have irrigation, you're good. And you've got it great all the way to fall, and then you're going to hit that first frost and lose whatever doesn't make it through first frost in the south, this is the point where we're trying to keep things alive long enough so that they'll do well for us in round two as we get into fall. Uh, and then some things are still doing really good. Now, for me this year, everything's doing good because aquaponics rocks. And I'm talking about more plain old gardening, though all of these would be things you can, and I'm growing some of them this year in wicking beds that are tied into aquaponics, which makes them even better. In fact, you can grow anything with aquaponics, so all of this is doable with aquaponics, or in your garden. I just wasn't really thinking that way when I put it together. And again, I just it was kind of thinking about like things that I'm going to get going for later this season as I'm transitioning. You know, I have like I was mentioning with tomatoes with blight. Around here, man, it just it just hits you no matter what you do, no matter how healthy your soil is, no matter how well you do your plants, over time you just watch blight Crawl up onto your tomatoes and start to destroy the tomato plants, and you get to a point where it's a diminishing return. You know, you can get a plant big enough to produce a couple tomatoes, and then it's 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 tore up. So we usually do really well early, and like right now, I have like tomatoes like raining down on me. But I'm starting to pull some of the vines out of the wicking beds, and like, what am I going to put in there? And I thought, you know what, you should have done this year, Jack. Is you should have planted some tomatillos, because I remember I planted tomatillos at my garden in Arlington. And I had to take a machete and chop my way through two beds because they grew so aggressively that they connected one bed to the other with an impregnable you know barrier. And I had to chop my I'm not kidding. And I had tomatillos and tomatillos and tomatillos, and they were the, you know the regular green ones. And uh, what I originally did is I grew some, uh, some bantam corn, Bantam corn, and I, I put the tomatillos right in between the corn stalks just like that's a thing that's done in Mexico a lot. And uh, the corn came and got harvested, and the tomatillos were still there, and like they took the whole bed over, and they took the next bed over, and they started crawling on the ground everywhere, and they were just everywhere. And I had, you know, that year I had, had I was my first year, I really dealt with a lot of tomato blight, and I'm like, these are great. And with the green ones, you know, they make good salsas and, and, and things like that, but then I learned about purple tomatillos. Purple tomatillos get a lot sweeter than the, the verde ones, the green ones. And both of them are good, though. One of the really great ways to do tomatillos that I don't see people do, and the green ones even work out this way, is you brush them with a little olive oil and, gr- and grill them. They, it brings a sweetness out in the green ones that's you know not there otherwise, and it definitely sweetens up uh, the uh, the purple ones. And they go good with just about any meat as a side. And and they're just, again, they're so easy to grow and they're so prolific. Um, If you wanted to grow them this year, especially in northern regions, you would have wanted to start them from seed like three months ago. But I did find some for sale on Jet.com, and I bet you can find them for sale on eBay.com as plants. And I don't know how well that'll do this year, but I'm going to give it a shot. But like next year, I'm definitely going to go the Tomatillo route. Um, They also make And Erica's talked about her version of it. Just a fantastic fermented salsa. Just absolutely fantastic. So it's it's one I I definitely think we should all think about growing because it just makes so much sense. The next one I have today is sweet potato. And a sweet potato is something that is grown a lot, but I don't know that people really make the most out of it. Sweet potatoes, to me, are actually my go-to green in the summer. Yep, the green part. Uh, Sweet potato leaves are, are... Uh, edible, nutritious, and they taste fantastic. Uh, the, my favorite way to make them is just basically wilted. So, what I'll do is I'll do something like I'll get three or four pieces of thick bacon and I'll, I'll fry it until it's almost but not quite crisp, just to where it's got a little bit of, you know, meatiness still left to it before it gets like a potato chip. And I'll take the bacon out and I'll slice it into bite sized pieces. And then I'll take the sweet potato greens and drop them into that bacon grease and just stir them around till they wilt. So they're just till they're hot. Take them off and sprinkle that bacon on top of them. I mean, it's that simple. And it's freaking dynamite. Uh, If you're making a salad, it's like another one of these greens. Like, you don't want to eat a bowl of them raw. But, like, you know, if uh, uh, 10%, 15% of your greens making up your salad were sweet potato, uh, raw sweet potato leaf. You'd, you'd be quite happy with it, I think. Uh, another thing I love about sweet potatoes is how easy they are to propagate. Um, I just have a, an aluminum baking pan, like a throwaway one, sitting out in my greenhouse, and I have a purple sweet potato and an orange sweet potato sitting in there, and I have a beer bottle that sits right next to them, an empty beer bottle from when I, a beer I finished out in the uh, greenhouse. I went, yeah, this will work. And, you know, I go out there every morning, check on all those systems. I take the beer bottle, I, I sit it in the, the, green, uh, the uh, aquaponics tank to fill it up, and I pour water in there so it doesn't run out of water. And I just keep pulling slips off and dropping them into beds, dropping them into, you know, ebb and flow beds, what have you. And I got sweet potato going everywhere now. And because it's that easy to propagate, all you have to do to have sweet potatoes for the rest of your life is get one from your fall into your spring. That's it. And what I learned this year with my purple sweet potatoes, if you leave them in the ground well-covered and well-mulched, at least where I'm at, they just come back on their own next year. And you can just pull slips off of there and replant them if you want them somewhere else. So you can just store a few in the ground. And that's pretty cool. And for those of you that are building perennial systems, uh, food forest-type systems and what have you, I really encourage you to think about planting sweet potato into those systems. And, you know, you should be mulching those systems anyway and just see what microclimates you have even further north where they make it through the winter and come back in the spring and summer. They get off to a really slow start. Uh, They're just now coming into their own, and that's here in Texas, and this is, what, you know, June 20th. But once they get going, anybody that's grown them can tell you they grow really, really fast, really fast. If you need to start sweet potatoes for yourself and you want to get it done, you know, now, and you're like, well, where do I get them? Go to the go to the grocery store, buy an organic sweet potato of the kind that you want, and put it in a pan of water on its side and keep it so it's got about you know a third of the potato in water. And within a week, you'll start to see little bitty slips start to come up. Slips are just the, the shoots that come up in it. And um, when they start to get bigger, and, you know, when they get a couple inches long, you just slip them off that potato and put them in a glass of water. And uh, in a few days, in, you know, kind of a, sh- a window, Sills and I place to do that, the, that, that slip will get roots on it and then it can be planted. Really important when you plant these things. They are so hardy if you do this. When you put a new slip in the ground, water it in heavily. The best time to plant it is in the evening so it gets all night into the morning without the sun beating on it to, uh, to, to you know kind of harden off. And if you can, set something that will put, put it in shade for like the first day or two. Uh, at least it will put it in shade through the hot, hottest part of the day. Once it gets past that, it won't care about heat. Once it gets some roots into that new media, the dirt, whatever it is, it'll just take off and go. If you have aquaponics on your property, and this is another reason, I I, I keep coming back to aquaponics with people now, uh, I've become a convert, I think just a single 100-gallon tank and a couple ebb and flow beds running to it with some goldfish swimming around in it is worth it just for plant propagation. Because you take a sweet potato slip, and you put it into, you know, like Lava Rock or Aquaponics Media or what have you for a few days, and when you pull it out of there, the root system on that will blow your mind. At the point where it would have just started to put some roots on sitting in a glass of water, it will have big old hairy roots, and it will just rock for you when you put it in the ground. It will be extremely resilient, and those big root systems get that thing off to a fast start. It starts setting up additional shoots and things like that. And the reason I love them is because once you get them where they're just full-on going, it seems like you go cut you know a big bowl of greens off, and you can't even tell you did it. You do it every day all week long, and there's still more at the end of the week. And I, I don't know many other plants that can do that for you. So definitely sweet potato. And then, you know, toward the end of the year, cut back on the irrigation a little bit, stress them a little bit for the last month so you get a good tuber set, and you get a great tuber yield that stores well into your winter. So you get to eat greens all summer and then you have tubers through the winter for your stews and stuff like that. And I certainly feel sweet potato is a much better root crop health-wise than plain old white potato. All right. Next up, eggplant. I was a slow convert to eggplant until I had it made a variety of ways specifically in things like curries because I think if you if you if you bread something and fry it, and then smother it in gobs of tomato sauce and massive amounts of Parmesan cheese, and call it, you know, eggplant Parmesan. Yeah, it kind of tastes good, but it doesn't really taste good because it's eggplant. It tastes good because it's cheese and bread and 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 sauce. And it's like trying to hide the eggplant. But I've had some pretty decent eggplant dishes. And then the other thing I've learned is how many varieties of eggplant there are. There are tons of varieties really cool different varieties of eggplants and they tend to grow really well Um, I have some growing in my aviary this year they're doing well but I'm getting low productive yields because I think the shade cloth I have on the aviary is too much this will be a plant I will dedicate a bed to with the new system that will be going in at the end of this year There will be an aquatic based wicking bed system with at least 12 wicking beds um Because they are so hardy, they're so productive, they taste good, and there's a good economic return on growing your own. They're very easy to start from seed. And I'll tell you like an example of one way that you can make eggplant that most people, I don't think, really think about. So I'm going to give you kind of the abbreviated version of this recipe. It's actually on Epicurious, which is where I found it, and I'll have a link in the show notes to you. But this is for a shrimp, coconut, and eggplant curry. Here's the basic ingredients in it. Uh, Coconut oil, uh, onion, garlic, ginger, uh, red or green chili, deseeded, teaspoon of ground cumin, uh, ground coriander, uh, garam masala, uh, turmeric, sea salt, black pepper, eggplant, uh, some cherry tomatoes, some vegetable stock, a cup of coconut milk, uh, and a half pound of raw shrimp, and a handful of baby spinach. And to make it, what you do is you heat a tablespoon of coconut oil in a large sauté pan and fry the onion, garlic, and ginger and chili for two to three minutes to soften it, stirring frequently. Stir in the spices and season well with a pinch of salt and pepper. Continue to fry over medium heat uh, for a further minute until fragrant. Transfer the mixture into a mini food processor and blend till smooth, adding a splash of water if necessary to increase the consist or loosen the consistency of the paste. Uh, then return to the pan uh, to high heat and put in another tablespoon of coconut oil. Add the paste and fry for 2 to 3 minutes. Add the eggplant and saute for just a minute or two, stirring to coat it with the paste before adding the cherry tomatoes. Pour in the stock and bring it to a boil and then reduce heat and simmer for 10 to 12 minutes. Then add your coconut milk and the shrimp and cook for four, 3 to 4 minutes until the shrimp are pink and cooked through. And the sauce has just thickened, stir in the spinach and wilt for a minute, then season this to taste with salt and pepper. Serve immediately. It's actually really easy it's, and it's, it's, it's a very unique thing. and you, you notice like people hear curry and they think one thing, and curry can be so many different things. It's like curry in, in, in Asia is like when we say barbecue in America, that means like a million different things to to people. Uh, what they really mean by barbecue and what good barbecue is in Carolina style or Texas style or you know Memphis style. There's 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 different styles regionally of barbecue, and there's different you know preferred meats in different areas and different types of sauces and seasonings and some are all dry and etc. So if you think about the diversity of American barbecue, and if you live in Pennsylvania, you probably just don't understand, and I, I can't help you, right? Because uh, I used to live there, and I know you don't. You don't get a lot of really good barbecue in Pennsylvania. Barbecue is a sauce you dump on something that's sweet. That's how they think of it in a lot of places. But if you understand the diversity of American quality barbecue, curries like that times a hundred. So I really recommend that you know you get into to learning to make these different curries. And a lot of the stuff that you can grow in your garden actually is really great in curries as well. Certainly eggplant. Changes everything about eggplant. Uh, And yet, you're still eating eggplant instead of a giant gob of bread and Parmesan cheese and sauce. If you're gonna do that, you might as well just use a chicken in the first place. All right. Uh, Because then at least you can taste the meat inside there. Uh, Next up today, I have arugula. Arugula is one of my go to greens. It does get a bit balty here in the midsummer, but it does pretty well, especially if you give it like shade from like noon on. It doesn't need a lot of sun. So, if it gets, if you can find a place, a little patch for your arugula, if you live in the south, where it gets shaded from like noon to one o'clock on, it'll do a much better for you. And in more northern climates, full sun is what it really loves. Um, what I like about arugula is it has this sharp, nutty bite. And we do a ton of stuff with arugula. Uh, and we can grow arugula and we generally end up buying sp- uh, baby spinach because. It, it's just too much trouble to grow in the situation that we have here with all this heat. Um, but arugula and baby spinach simply sauteed with butter as a side dish alone. It's just its just absolutely fantastic. Arugula is one of my favorite salad greens. I love that, that sharp, nutty bite that it provides. But how about this? How about arugula pesto? Now you make pesto with basil, parmesan cheese, oil, and pine nuts. You just substitute the basil with uh, with arugula and it's much sharper and it has a lot more of an intense flavor and it's absolutely fantastic um, and if you have a pasta that you like if you make up an arugula, um, pa- arugula uh, pesto and then just toss it onto a, a, your hot pasta after you've drained it that's pretty fantastic another thing that arugula is really good with though is your pastas so you just you make your pasta and then you just wilt your arugula into your pasta at the end, like something like as simple as this. So take your your favorite pasta and something more like a spaghetti or a linguine will work better in this situation where you kind of have that ability to roll it up. So you take a huge amount of arugula because it's going to wilt down. You cook your pasta and then you get a, like a you know a, 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 the same pot you cooked it in whatever just something you can melt some butter in. And melt, you know, however much butter you need to get a good coating of your pasta and and chop some garlic up. Throw the garlic in there and just just lightly, gently saute the garlic. You don't want it to burn. Just so you like get the flavor of the, the garlic into the butter. Throw your noodles back in and toss the coat. Get them nice and hot in that warm pan. And then throw your arugula in there and just keep tossing it until your arugula melts in. The other thing you can do is get a a big bunch of cherry tomatoes, cut them into quarters, and when you when you get your butter and your garlic on, throw your tomatoes in there too, and get them like par cooked. Then you go with your pasta and then your arugula. Okay, let's say you don't eat pasta, like we don't eat a lot of pasta because it's so much carbohydrate. Well, you know how to make zoodles with with zucchini, right? If you don't, I'll have a link in the show notes that shows you how to make that. Just zoodles with cherry tomatoes and arugula freaking fantastic now it's actually like a pasta dish and and the arugula is one of those greens that you can just pretty much wilt into anything and because of its sharp kind of nutty bitterness it adds a lot to it super easy to grow and if you can get a good patch of it going and let it go to seed it often self reseeds and becomes perpetual it's not a perennial but it will act like one in the right situation so arugula i recommend for your garden i got a lot of greens today because they're things that are overlooked. And they're things that you can harvest a little of every day and kind of graze your way through your system and put a lot of variety in your diet. So the next one is Swiss chard. Swiss chard is basically in the beet family. And if you look at the leaves, they're very beet-like in the way that they look. And I like all Swiss chard, but I really like red Swiss chard. I usually grow like the the five-color, you know, different... Colors there's like the orange and the the yellow and the green and the red and the pink I think is the colors and you don't know what you're gonna get you just plant a whole bunch of it uh, I just put a whole bunch of it into my aquaponic system and it's it's starting to take off already uh, from some plants I started under my grow lights and uh, I, you know I'm excited man because that's another thing that's another plant that we are big in this country that greens means salad and don't get me wrong Swiss chard chopped up with other greens and what have you and maybe some cucumber and tomato and some quail legs cut in half that are hard boiled in a salad with some blue cheese yeah that's pretty good not going to complain but chard is another one of those things that just makes a fantastic um, cooked green that you don't have to like cook a really long time like maybe you would cook collards or something so here's kind of the same thing I said for sweet potatoes amped up a little bit for Swiss chard so Swiss chard has a big, uh, a big rib on it. If you have the bigger leaves, if you have small leaves, you can skip this part. If you have bigger leaves with that big celery kind of shaped rib, cut the leaf off the, um, off the, 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 uh, the shaft, I guess you'd call it, the rib, uh, kind of just off each side with your knife, and then cut the rib up like you're cutting chunks of celery up, and make two piles: one that's chopped leaves and one that's chopped stems, because the stems need a little longer to cook. Okay. We're going to start out the same way we did with the the, the sweet potato, but because the chard has a little more body to it when it's cooked, we can do some other things here. So we're going to cook ourselves four, five, six pieces. Who's looking? Seven. So you can eat one, pieces of thick, good quality bacon. We're going to cook them until they're almost crisp, but not quite crisp. Probably a little less crisp than you would like them for your breakfast, Okay, unless you don't like crisp bacon. Get them out. Set them aside to drain. As soon as they cool, chop them up into bite-sized pieces. Chop up two apples. Pick your favorite variety, but Fuji's are great for this. You peel them, core them, and chop them up into bite-sized pieces. Throw your rib pieces of your chard and your apple in together and cook them until they begin to soften. I'm talking two and a half, three minutes. And then... Throw your leaves in; they'll immediately wilt. And you want to keep them bright green. You don't want to overcook them. Stir them around till they wilt a little bit. They'll probably cook a minute-ish, maybe two. Kind of just taste them and decide when you want them. Pull them out, even though they have that great bacon grease on them. Hit them with a little salt. Smoked salt is really nice. And then crumble the bacon over it. Oh my! So simple. You can make that from the time you you got have the leaves sitting on the cutting board to the time you're eating it in under 10 minutes. And here's what I love about sides that are awesome like that. You would want to probably go ahead and prepare your your apples in advance. So you just have your bowl of apple pieces sitting there. And go ahead and fry your bacon in advance. So then you have your your grease and you have your, your chopped bacon sitting there. And that way when you do like a steak or a chicken or something on the grill, and you take it off the grill and you set it, to rest for ten to fifteen minutes. Now you make your side, and you can serve because you don't want the side to get cold, right? You don't want the side nice and hot when you serve it next to that steak or that chicken or that pork chop or whatever. So, bam, ten minutes, that side's done, and now you've got something you've elevated your dining experience, and it's coming out of your backyard. I posted a picture this morning on Facebook. That's that it's not really um, the same type of thing we're talking about here, but it's the same. Concept of using the stuff from your your yard and and taking it to a level that makes it you know like restaurant quality. So last night, what I cooked for dinner was a tri-tip roast that I got from the neighbor. Actually, I didn't get the roast. I got the half a cow from the neighbor. I split a cow with another guy, and uh, we got a we got a tri-tip roast out of the freezer a couple days ago, and I was ready to cook it. So I grilled that just salt and pepper, direct heat, and they're pretty thick, right? So the ends are kind of thin and the, the center's a lot thicker. So that's a great piece because I can make Dorothy's just pink and I can make mine red. So seared both sides of the roast and set it off to the side. Pard cook some fingerling potatoes, five minutes in boiling water. Throw them in the cold water with some salt. Turn the, the heat on high. When the water starts boiling, turn it down to just stays at a simmer. Let it cook for five minutes. Drain the potatoes. Throw them in some aluminum foil. By now, the steak, the tri-tip, has moved to the side of the grill, and it's cooking under indirect heat. It's just been seared against a big honking hunk of meat, so it takes a little while. We take the potatoes, we throw them in some aluminum foil with a couple tablespoons of butter, some fresh thyme and fresh rosemary, and some smoked salt and cracked black pepper. Throw that on the grill. Earlier, I'm dealing with this cucumber apocalypse. So I made a cucumber mint salad, Right? Um, and I made that from cucumbers, uh, red onion, bell pepper, heirloom tomato, and mint. We grew everything except the onions. And to make a dressing for that, I used extra virgin olive oil, a little bit of apple cider vinegar, some white wine, not white wine vinegar, like some Chardonnay. And I'm just saying you know, enough to, to get a good coating on it. Uh, smoked salt and black pepper. I mixed that up, and I put that. And, and to do that and make that really good, what you do is you take your tomatoes, not tomatoes, you take your peppers and your red onions and put them in a separate bowl, fill it with water, and put a big handful of ice and let them soak in there for about 10 minutes while you're doing everything else. Then take the ice out, strain them, and put them back into your cucumbers and everything else. It really crisps them up, brings out the brightness of their flavor. So I have this picture that's on my Facebook, my personal Facebook page. It looks like a restaurant-quality meal. And I had 15 minutes' worth of work into it. And all of that came out of the garden. And that's what I think we if we're going to really enjoy our gardens, we need to learn how to use all of these different things. And Swiss charred with bacon and apples, oh my, it's pretty damn good. Next one I have is amaranth. And there's lots of different kinds of amaranth. And when people hear about amaranth, if they know what it is, they generally think about amaranth as a grain. And it is a grain, and it's a very nutritious grain, and it is a pain in the ass to grow as a grain for personal consumption on any quantity of any scale. It's just it's ridiculous. So you're better looking at um, things like red amaranths and vegetable amaranths and stuff like that and grow them as greens as well. And you can let some go to seed, and then you have plenty of seed for next year, and it'll sell free seed. It'll be growing everywhere. But the young plants, or as the plants get bigger, the young shoots, and as you cut the young shoots, more shoots come back are just a uh, fantastic uh, uh, plant to use as a green. And this is a green that I think is really good in a salad. Though I met a gal at an expo here in Texas one time, as a listener of the show, and uh, she had a booth at the Farmer's Market in Arlington. I think she's actually like co-owner of the whole Farmer's Market now. And she, w- she started a business where she was producing something that was in every product in her backyard. So... Anyway, so what she wanted, she wanted to be able to say that everything in her booth had something grown in her backyard. So she made these tortillas, and obviously she's not going to grow organic wheat in her backyard. So she's buying, you know, organic wheat flour to make the tortillas with. But what she would do is she would grow the big, giant amaranth plants. You know, some of these things were 10 feet tall. And she cut the leaves off and dried them and crumbled them up and mixed them in. And they tasted fantastic, and it was a huge protein uh, boost. Because amaranth is actually very high in protein, and when you're looking at it by weight of dried leaf, it's really high in protein. Very, very nutritious, so there's other ways you can use it. My favorite way to use amaranth, and uh, I think my my favorite variety to do this with, is called Hopi Red Dye Amaranth, because it's so bright and colorful. It's a traditional Chinese stir-fry. So you're like snow peas, water chestnuts, baby corn. Maybe you're doing a chicken stir fry, a beef stir fry. Maybe some broccoli florets, things like that. And you do, you you do stir fry, when you do Oriental lettuce, You do it scree, screaming hot, right? So you, you you usually what you'll do if you do it right, you'll cook your meat till it's almost done. You take it out. Then you throw most of your vegetables in. You add your meat back and you do whatever kind of stir-fry sauce, and I'm not going to get into that. This is turning too much of a cooking episode. But you take your red amaranth right at the end and just, like, you you can almost do it, like, at at flame-off. So, like, when you're actually, like, the, the wok is just screeching hot. It's all done. It's ready to serve. You just throw your amaranth in there and mix it in and let the heat do its thing, and it just brings this huge color this flavor and this nutrition stuff to a stir-fry. That's probably one of my favorite ways. And also just, you know, again, I'm beginning I'm big, I've always been big on the whole, like, grazing philosophy. Like, instead of going out and harvesting enough lettuce to have a salad, you harvest a little bit of lettuce, a little bit of arugula, a little bit of amaranth, a little bit of Swiss chard. And a little bit of some of the other greens that we'll talk about, and you make that mixed green salad. And you can change it a little bit. Days. Some days you you, you move a little toward the Swiss chard. Some days you move a little toward something we're going to talk about in a minute called New Zealand spinach or whatever. But you make that mix, and and you know, that's just fantastic as well. So amaranth is something that I think everybody should be growing. Again, my favorite variety of amaranth is called Hopi Red dye, and that stuff reproduces beautifully. So the next one I just kind of mentioned. New Zealand spinach. I'm not growing any of it right now, and I keep forgetting to do it in the spring. And I'll probably get some seeds and go ahead and get some going this year uh, here because it, it does overwinter. I'm just going to have to find a place where the freaking ducks can't get to it because I've know i not seen ducks eat it, but I know that between the ducks and the geese, they're going to eat it because it's a good green. New Zealand spinach seeds, almost like the, the seeds look almost like something painful. It's almost like a sandbur, but they don't quite have the sharp points. And they grow a triangular leaf it's kind of thick. It's got a little bit of that okra thing going on, but just a, a hint of it. It's not, it's not real heavy. It's not overpowering. And that's why I think it's best mixed with other greens, though, because that kind of simmers that down. What I love about it is we had a really pretty hard winter the last year I was in Arlington. And I had my garden beds there with New Zealand spinach, and I've always heard it was an annual. So it all died back to the ground. I'm thinking, what am I going to do at that spot? And when it started to warm up in the spring, I look and I see green. All oh, is that weeds? And I go look where the New Zealand spinach, brand new New Zealand spinach. And we were, you know, my zone is, you know, 8A, 7B, depending on which map and when you look at it. That year, that winter was definitely like a zone 7 winter. And it overwintered for me, just with mulch. So I think that's another, like a fantastic, anything that will come back for you year after year without replanting it, it's just a fantastic thing to be growing. Again, it's called New Zealand spinach, and it's, it's a great... I've never really sautéed it, braised it, anything like that, or cooked with it. I've always used it raw. I'm not sure if it would be good as a cooked cream, but my instinct is it would be pretty good. Uh, my instinct would be, and I've never tried it, but it might be good to use something like a stir-fry or something, because that little bit of the okra-type thing, when you cook into any kind of a sauce, that kind of tightens it up and thickens it up, so it'd be worth trying. The next one I have is another it's a green, but generally it's red, and it's called Orange. It's in the same family as amaranth and lambs quarters and goosefoot and things like that. And it is a to me it's a salad green only. That's that's what it's great for. And you can actually get different colors of it. Uh I've seen it in like like a yellow, orange color, like a green color, but the red, I think magenta magic is the is the variety that I've grown most. And uh, it's it's awesome for salads because it gives that color. So like some red amaranth and red orach, boom. I mean, now, I don't think this would be, I've never tried cooking it. It's a very, very thin leaf, almost like paper-thin type of leaf. It doesn't have a lot of body to it, so it goes well with other things uh, in, in a salad. And that's really what it's good for. But it's easy to grow, um, and it makes a garden look awesome because it has these big, round, bright red leaves. So that's another one that I would suggest you check out. Next one is called ground cherry, and it's kind of the same family like as tomato, tomatillo. Uh, it doesn't seem to, I've never had any of the blight problems that tomato is plagued with. Um, you, it grows very similar in structure to a tomato plant. The fruits on it um, are about the size of a cherry tomato, like a small cherry tomato, and they have a paper husk on them, just like a tomatillo does, and they're usually like an orangey yellow color. They taste like pineapple. They taste like kind of pineapple and strawberry melon. They're just fantastic. And once you get a plant growing, they just make tons of them. And the beauty is you you don't have to really worry about whether they're ripe or not. Um, They'll just start falling off. And because they have that nice little paper husk, they don't get all dirty. So you just pick the ones up off the ground, give the plant a shake, and pick all the ones that fall up. And, and toss them in a bowl and just—it's like eating peanuts, you know. You pop them open, except you get this—it's—it's it's more like a fruit than a vegetable, you know. And I guess technically anything with a seed is a fruit, uh, but it's—it's it's more like that. It's like a dessert thing. Uh, Just—we used to just take the bowl and set them on the table and just eat them until they were gone, and then go get more. And just a fantastic, easy to grow plant. Very tiny seeds. Very tiny seeds. And a lot of the larger seed houses, like Burpee and stuff like that. In the spring, too late this year, but in the spring they do sell live plants, and that might be a way to go if you're kind of new to this sort of thing because they are a little bit more difficult in my experience to get well started than a lot of other vegetables. So ground cherry I recommend. Next one, lamb's quarters. I mentioned orach, goosefoot. Uh, all these plants are in this uh, chinapodium family uh, are great greens and just super powerful nutritional uh, powerhouses. Now, how easy is it is to grow lambs' quarters? When I moved in here to this property, it was growing everywhere. Now it doesn't grow many places. And the reason it doesn't grow many places is when it comes up in the spring, wherever it does come up, if a bill can find it, it gets duckified and eaten because they love it. But I have around my garden or my pond, one of my garden ponds, I have a fence that keeps the ducks out of the little six foot garden pond. I can't have them in there. And um, <clears throat> that was an area that had a lot of lambs' quarters. So, That fence has been there three seasons now, and every year I have lamb's quarter that grows inside that fence. I don't do anything. I don't do anything at all. And I have an area now, My I guess I would call it my fourth paddock that doesn't get used as a paddock, that I'm probably going to harvest seed from this year and just spread it all around down by my big pond and all to get it growing down there. Because it is just incredibly nutritious. You can harvest the seed and mix it in with any kind of a dough or breading, or it can be just sprinkled on salads or in soups, and it's incredibly high in protein. I think it's something like uh, 42 percenters. I'm not sure, uh, but it's, it's very, very high in protein. It's nutty. It's They're very small. You want to wait till they're black to harvest them, to use them that way. But, I mean, you, I, I've taken, they get a huge plant, and you just cut the plant down and start cutting the seed heads off it and just hold them. Hold it over a five-gallon bucket and just run your hand over it, and one massive plant one year I got a half of a half-gallon Ziploc bag, so a quart of seed off of one plant, and that's like a zillion seeds. Uh, so you can harvest it and and resow it. But honestly, to sow it, the best thing to do is to put it out in fall, right before main winter starts, and let it just lay there. It's this, you know it's a native. It's not really native; it's an invasive plant to the United States, brought over from uh, eastern East Asia, I think. Uh, Eurasia, no Eurasia, right? So that area of the world has a food and fodder product, and then people just decided not to weed because it grows everywhere and it self reproduces, etc. Uh, I've grown it in my garden. People say, well, it'll take over your whole garden. No, it won't. No, it won't. Well, hundreds of them will come up. Great, it's fantastic. Because they'll never get more than about six to eight inches tall, and I'll have all these little wonderful uh, lamb's quarter young plants in the season. And I'll pull all the and I'll just leave a couple big ones, and I'll pull all those out, and I'll make them as a sauteed green. I'll make them. I'll put them in soups. I'll do them in fritters. I'll put them on my salad. What's my problem here? You know. And if I had if I had the ducks at the time and I was growing them like that, any I couldn't, you know, I'd just pluck out and just throw over the fence to the ducks, and they'll they'll tear it up, man. They love those things. So lamb's quarter is another. Highly overlooked plant in America, and a lot of you'd say like I'm not going to grow lambsquarters because I have it growing all around me. Then harvest it, harvest especially in the spring when you know when it, when the whole plant is about eight inches tall. You take a pair of shears or a knife and cut it off at the bottom, and get a big bundle of that, and give that the the sautéed bacon grease treatment or um, any kind of a soup. Like you'd be surprised how good it is in like a chicken soup. You do a chicken soup, and then you wilt lamb's quarter leaves into it. It's just so good. And it's, it is a weed, but it's a great weed. Next one is also a weed. Purslane. And this is something you may have growing in your yard somewhere. I used to have it here. Doc said it all again. You know, I mean, it's just how it is with everything good. They just eat everything because they love it. Um, but purslane, you can actually get improved varieties of purslane seeds. Uh, that, that provide better, you know, uh, a better food yield. Uh, it is a summer plant. <clears throat> it does have, again, a little of that okra kind of thing going on, but very, very mild. Um, but a little bit of that sliminess. But it's, I, I shouldn't even say it does because it's, it's, it. You don't taste it. It's not really there. Like, but when you when you smash it, you kind of feel the moisture. But when you eat it, it doesn't have any of that response. Like, like not even like a malabar spinach does or something like that. Uh, but if that's just a salad. Thing that's just I don't know if anybody cooks purslane, but I have no desire to cook it. You just rip parts of it off and just throw it in a salad, and it's fantastic. It's also another one of those plants um, I had it grown all over my property in Arkansas, and I'd be out watering around. it. Be one of those plants you kind of walk by, oh, there's some purslane, just yank a piece off and eat it, uh, straight off the you know straight off the, off the off the, the limb so to say, and it's another plant that we just. We, we we look at it as an annoyance, a nuisance, and it's extremely nutritious. It's extremely tough. It's easy to grow. It self propagates. Um, when I moved to my place in Arlington, <clears throat> I didn't have any, and no, I, I looked all over the neighborhood, didn't have any. I bought some improved variety of first-line seed from one of the seed stores, and I planted it in my garden, and we had tons of it that year, and I didn't really notice that much of it. because a little bit went to seed. Next year, I had a bunch of it in my front yard, you know, and I'm, I'm sure there's the true green chem lawn neighbor was worried it would encroach into his lawn, but probably never did because that it can't live in true green chem lawn land. Um, but that just tells you how how stout it is and how able to self propagate it is, and, and that's what we want when we're growing edible plants. We want things that don't die. We don't want things that we have to love on every single day to keep them alive, that if we miss watering for two days, they die. The first time there's any kind of a a fungal issue, that they die. And so many of our modern vegetables have become so widely grown that the things that attack them and eat them and damage them are living in such quantities now that it's much more difficult to grow them than it was even 25 years ago. When I was a kid, I didn't know what tomato blight was. I never saw it. I never saw a blighted tomato plant. It, thinking back now, I might have seen a little bit on a leaf or two and didn't know what it was. But I never watched a plant just like the leaves just fall off it from the bottom up. And like it tries to outgrow the blight so they can produce some tomatoes before the blight gets to it. I never saw that. I never saw a tomato plant that, you know, a month into growing had a stalk thicker than my thumb. stalk thicker than my thumb it was bright green. And two weeks later it has leaves. I never saw that. I'm sure it was around in certain regions and all, but i I never saw it in Pennsylvania and I think that's part of what we have now that we've been we've been row cropping and common cropping for so long it's It's not just now the the mainstream agriculture that has to deal with it. It's that we've we've upped the pathogen count so much, these specialized pathogens that you know like a fungal blight for tomatoes and potatoes or a, something like the uh, cucumber beetle that transpl- transmits the mosaic, uh, cucumber mosaic virus. There's just so much more of it now than there used to be. So if we can create more diversity, then we'll have less issues, if, if that makes sense. So my last one today is something most people grow as a flower, an astertium. An assertion is... Uh, a, a relative of watercress, and when you eat it, boy, you know it, because it's, it's peppery, spicy. And you can eat the leaves, and you can eat the uh, the flowers. And the flowers are less peppery, but still very peppery than the leaf. The leaves will they'll light you up. It's all there. Uh, but they make an awesome pesto. So if you want to do a pesto with uh, nasturtium, what you do is you get your pile of leaves, and you get boiling water. And you get a like a, like a colander or something that can go in the boiling water. You put them in the water for like 10 seconds. That's it. And you dump them into an ice water bath. And then you make it like a normal pesto. Pine nuts, olive oil, uh, and Parmesan cheese. It's freaking dynamite. It is absolutely freaking dynamite. And as far as the flowers, um, you know, when I have that grown, I'll just eat one here and there, and they have that nice pepper. I think they're very tonifying for the body. But they're also fantastic in salads. It's one of those ways you can kind of blow away guests when they come over. Because remember, we want to spread growing your own food. And the way we do that, the reason I talk so much about cooking this stuff and preparing this stuff is because when you share food with people, it's it's not like trying to convince them, oh, you should start a garden. It makes them want a garden. Because like, how the hell did you do this? And one of the ways you can really blow it up, man, you make that salad. Now think about the kind of stuff we've been talking about for South today. So yeah, maybe you've even got some store bought lettuce and spinach in there. I don't know. But you got your cucumber, you should have to grow cucumbers. They're too easy not to. So you have some thin sliced cucumber. And you got a green mix in there with some a little bit of sweet potato green, especially like the purple leaf sweet potatoes. Uh, some Swiss chard with some some red and yellow going on. Some red amaranth, a little bit of that dark green from New Zealand New Zealand spinach, that burgundy from Oroch, a little bit of lambs quarter leaf in there. Uh, some purslane hanging out, You've got all that going on. You toss it with a nice dressing, and then right before you serve salad, you go out and pick your nasturtiums, and you put whole nasturtium flowers, like four on each one. A couple little quail eggs in there, like take two quail eggs, hard boiled for each salad, peel them, cut them in half, and set them on there. Badass. Looks like something you get at a you know at a restaurant where you're gonna you be into it for seventy bucks a, a head at the table for salad and food and, and a drink and it is it's, it's not only it is it's better and, and and that's like the big thing that like when I started this show and I started doing Garden Topics and it was a survival podcast I didn't know how well it would be received and I'd say by like 90% of the audience very well received and some people would be like I tuned in to learn about survival what are you going to do tell me how to make a pie next well, I might I, I don't think I ever have I'm not big on pie you can go to Paul Wheaton for pie Paul Wheaton loves pie. But um, as far as I'm concerned, like survival, the number one need that we have that people do without in the world for their survival is nutrition. Not just food, but nutrition. And it's the one thing that we have no excuse for in America. There are parts of the world where you can't grow anything somebody will destroy it, the, the, the environment is too inhospitable, you don't have access to land, etc. cetera, agnosium. In this country, wherever you live, there's something you can grow, and we have so many resources, even places that are inhospitable environments for gardening, you can create a hospital environment, whether it's through aquaponics or shade cloth or whatever it is. And it doesn't take that much. Whatever room you're sitting in now, if you're in your house, that's enough space probably to provide enough food to really make a difference in the nutrition quality of your family's life. And that's why I do shows like this. And I think it's good that once in a while we get back to these kind of like basic shows. This is very much like a show I did back when I was in the car. You know, nine years ago when I climbed into it the first time. You know, ten plants you didn't know you could grow, and stuff like that. And so I hope you enjoyed today's show. And I hope it's got you kind of motivated. And I want you guys to start thinking about fall gardening. It's usually sometime in the next month or so that I do my annual show on fall gardening because it's coming. I I know that seems crazy because the kids just got out of school a couple weeks ago. It's like 118 degrees in Phoenix today, and I'm sure the global warming alarmists will be like, they had to cancel flights. That's never happened before because of heat. Yes, it has. It's been hotter in Phoenix. Shut up. It's record setting heat in Phoenix for this date shut up right so like it's hot out it's blazing hot it's it's freaking miserable heat here because we are still in like usually by now we've gotten out of the humidity this year it's still humid and it's like low to mid 90s but it's like northeastern humidity or Houston humidity it just sucks and uh, I'm, I'm plowing through this next project of mine right now oh cool that's something I should tell you guys about here today too So I'm building this 8 foot by 8 foot um, by about 38 inch deep fish tank, I guess you'd call it. It looks awesome. And I've been taking video of it, and when I get it completed, which will probably be another week, I'm going to splice all the videos together and put them on this one long play video on YouTube. Those of you supporting me on Patreon, though, I have the first four of them done, and all of those, like the, the the hidden ones that are just the unedited, unspliced ones, they all went up on Patreon Patreon today for anybody that's a patron. Even people that are a buck a month. So uh, remember, if you want to support the show, one way you can do that is on Patreon. And you Patreon folks that are listening today, if you missed that I put those videos up, uh, have a look at them. So I've, I've got all these projects going on, but I'm really looking toward fall already. I mean, for, for me, summer is when I have to keep everything alive, when I have to irrigate certain areas, and when I swim in my pool. I mean, the rest of the year is what does it for me, man. I, I, the winter, I, I don't like when we have the really cold, hard freezes uh, because it's, it's so damaging to our infrastructure because we're not in the north. So we don't have our infrastructure designed around going down to 15 degrees for three days in a row. We just don't. So there's always things that break, and there's always things that cause problems when that happens. But the rest of, like, through most of our mild winters, our fall, our spring, that's what I'm I'm just enjoying life. And uh, so now what I'm, I'm starting to do is plan. So, like, what is going to be the implementation stages of this new growing system? And when are we going to have them in place? And what plants do we want ready to drop in for growing through that fall season? And whether yours is a little bitty system on your back porch, you know, a little, like I said, aquaponics. You can go out and get a 100-gallon stock tank from Tractor Supply for 70 bucks, and then use the concrete mixing trays and set four of those up, four ebb and flow beds up on a stand that drain into that 100-gallon uh, tank. Go out to a local farm pond with a fishing pole with a number 10 eagle claw hook and a, and a, a couple worms and cut the worms in little pieces and catch yourself you know, 50, 60, 100 little bluegills and throw them in there, and start doing aquaponics. And I think it's worth that for plant propagation, because the way you can root cuttings and that stuff has blown me away. Um, and, and, and these types of systems allow us the freedom to produce our own food. And the beauty of this stuff is once you get into it, you realize that whatever it is that you love, you can find it, and there's a new adventure. There's something new to be done. I've been doing this stuff one way or another, growing food, since I was eight years old. And I still have more to learn, and I still have more to experience, and I'm in my 40s. And I don't know many other things, other than maybe hunting and fishing, uh, that I, I personally feel that way about. You know, th- These are the types of things that are lifelong journeys. And you parents, man, there is no way... To put your children in touch with reality that's better than teaching them to grow their own food. I think that there's a direct correlation in the separation of the minds of our young people from reality and their separation from the soil. I really believe that. I don't mean that in any kind of uh, you know mystical, hippie-ass way or something like that. I mean that in just a, a practical, down-to-earth means. When children are disconnected from the fact that what grows in the dirt is what feeds them, and yet they're, they're, they're fed environmental nonsense by the education system, and they think they care about the planet, but they don't even know how to grow a frickin' tomato, the disconnect there is dramatic, and you can't help but be separated from reality. So if you want to ground your young people in reality, get them grounding with a shovel. Get them grounding with a trowel. Get them in touch with the ground. If you want them grounded, get them in touch with the ground and get them using that ground to produce food for you and for themselves. And I'm telling you, as someone who had it done with me when I was a kid, it will never go away. They may have a period in their life where they're really busy and growing a family and getting things off the ground, and they they, they let it go, but that seed will be planted in their heart and their mind, and someday they'll come back to it. Trust me, I know from experience. Anyway, with that, if you enjoyed today's show and you want to support us, another way you can do that, a really easy way, is when you're going to shop online, just go to tspaz.com first. When you get to tspaz.com, you can see my reviews and you can see the Amazon deals of the day. And As long as you're shopping through tspaz.com, you support the work that we do at the Survival Podcast. Today, for the item of the day review, I have a twofer because they kind of really go together. In fact... Most of the time when I have a review uh, product from Amazon, I just take a picture off Amazon because it's professional photography. If you go look at today's uh, item of the day, you'll see my hand holding the two products. One of them is the Aurora Fire Starter by Solo Scientific, and the other one is the base case from Ultimate Survival Technologies. So the Aurora Fire Starter is nothing but a Ferrisseum rod. But I really like it. It's my favorite Ferrisseum rod that I've ever found. And uh it's got a, a sleeve that screws onto it that protects the ferro rod, and that sleeve has a built-in striker. And it has a great big honk and easy to hold onto serrated top, like a ribbed or a uh, textured top. So like a diamond texture, so you can get a real good hold on it if your hands are wet and still get that good spark. I personally think that every person should have on their keychain a Phariseum rod. If you don't get the Aurora one, which is like 20 bucks, and you want to buy a cheap one, you can buy three of them for $10 bucks, pre drilled that are just plain Jane ones if you want to. Have Phariseum rods on your keychains so you can start fire, because it's good to be able to do. You don't ever know when you'll need to, but you don't also know anywhere when you just want to. And then the UST, uh, the Ultimate Survival Technologies uh, base case, is basically a pillbox. Um, it's... Rugged aluminum, screws together with O-ring, stays together tightly. It's about a half inch long, or half inch round, and uh, it's I guess it's about an inch long. Let me see, looking at it right here. I'd say it's about two inches long and about a half inch in diameter. And um, I just have mine shoved tight with um, cotton balls, and then I have a big dollop of Vaseline on the top. And the reason I do it that way is that if I pull that out now, I have un- mutilated cotton with the Vaseline that I can make really, really feathery so it's going to catch those sparks. And I can just take that dollop of Vaseline and take it, put it on actually some of the other cotton or like on little tinder and what have you so you get that long burn from the Vaseline. And man, I never failed to start a fire. Now here's the thing. If you go look at this picture, you can tell that I've been on my keychain for a long time. Since I bought them on Amazon on the same day, I was able to go to my order history and say, well, how long have I had these? Um, I bought them on August third, 2012 with two-day shipping so on August fifth, two 2012 I put these two, two implements on my keychain they are still there they still work um, combined price about 25 bucks with free shipping and uh, like I said a ferrocerium rod and some source of tender should be on your keychain in my view as part of your everyday carry or your EDC if not these and you don't have something then, then get something and we'll always carry a lighter, lighters leak, they run out, they fail. Ferrocerium rods, if you have a, a, a piece of metal with a sharp edge, a ferrocerium rod will blast hot sparks on a tender, and you will get a flame if you know how to make a fire, period. I actually consider a ferrocerium rod a more reliable fire starting tool if you know how to make a fire than I do a lighter. Um, what the lighter gives you is instant gratification. As long as it works, click, there's a flame. Right? Wind, rain, things change that. And, uh, it sucks, but well, oh, I have a big lighter and you didn't realize that a crack came in it and it's dried out. I've seen that too. Anyway, the Aurora Flyer Starter of the UST Titanium Base Case Items of the Day, uh, review for you at tspaz.com and check them out. And always, if you do your online shopping through tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do, no matter what you buy. With that, let's get into uh, the song of the day for today. Um, This is a song that I I really like the sound of it, and it's one of those songs that when I I read it, and again, John Adams uh, picks this for us each day. It's by a band called Switchfoot, and it's called Dare You to Move. And I had never... When I, when I read this, I was like, I, I don't think I've ever heard that song. I don't know who Switchfoot is. And when I, when I listen to the song, especially once you hit the chorus, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've heard that song. It's a pretty cool sounding song, very alternative rock kind of sounding. Uh, what John Adams says is Matthew uh, request Matthew and requested the song, a motivating song about advancing forward at the various stages of life. So what I'm doing is anytime anybody sends me a song suggestion anymore, I forward it to John and let him figure out if it goes and where it goes. Um, So Matthew from the audience asked about that. So I pulled up Song Facts on it. Here's what the Song Facts say at songfacts.com. This song is about a man at different stages in his life. It's a Christian theme of how we stumble upon hard times in life and how God dares us to move and get back on our feet. It's about how there's a difference between who we are and who we should be. John Foreman, who is Switchfoot's lead singer and lyricist, tells us, that It is these challenging moments to produce his best songs," Said Foreman, quote, When I'm happy, when I'm enjoying life, I'm home, I'm surfing, I'm spending time with my wife, my friends, maybe we're playing cover tunes, uh, we're playing Tom Petty or the band, or we're covering Bob Dylan, and I am not thinking about the pain. And then the moment I encounter something that feels difficult, I feel that's when, for me, I turn to writing and thinking, and maybe a song comes from that. Um, indeed. So... I think my question for many people is, are you going to move? Not, I dare you to move. Are you going to move? Are you going to move your life forward? You know, I say all the time, you're on that sliding scale. You're either moving toward greater liberty, freedom, and independence, or life's moving you backwards. So are you going to move? Or are you going to let life push you around? Dare you to move indeed. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. The tension is here, the tension is here